Well, I am not the most mechanically inclined person. I think I was at some point in time, but as I get older, I don't know, whatever. It just doesn't seem to work. I don't get it anymore. Things don't fit together, and I don't have a lot of patience when things don't fit together. And so my MO, when two parts don't fit together, is push harder. <laughs> Go find a hammer. You know, make it fit together, right? And I can't tell you how many parts or how many things I've been trying to put together that I have broken because I'm just like, well, it's not going in. I might as well just push harder, and then it breaks. And I understand that. You understand that after, of course, that happens. And then I see I have that moment. Oh, that's the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> that part goes, okay, I got it. Wish I would have known that five seconds ago. I was looking at it backwards, right? I was looking at it upside down. In Romans, we've been talking about the gospel, how literally we can exchange the truth of God for a lie, the lie of sin. And God sometimes lets us experience the consequences of giving us over to our sin, and we experience that. But there's something else that happens when we do that. And what happens when we do that is our whole mind and our whole perception, even our whole worldview, gets warped. It gets out of whack. We, we, we look at things differently. We look at things upside down. We look at things backwards. Just like when I'm trying to put two pieces together that doesn't work, we're looking at life the wrong way. When you turn your life upside down, it, it warps your whole worldview. And Paul is going to give us some very clear examples of that today. So if you're not with us in Romans chapter 1, please head over there. If you are visiting with us, which many of you are, thank you so much for visiting. Uh, we preach expositionally here, which means that we expose the meaning of the text. Hopefully, I do the hard work of exposing the meaning of the text. And hopefully, at the end of the day, the main point of my sermon is the main point of the passage. I don't look to bring a meaning into the text and then look around for 1,500 verses and pull them out of context to try and prop up my own thoughts. I was telling somebody this morning, I don't have any original thoughts. These are my thoughts, right? Hopefully, everything I say is in agreement with the Word of God. And so, typically, we go through books of the Bible here, and we're going through the book of Romans. And last week, we dug into the main content of Paul's letter where he told us that the wrath of God is being revealed because of those who knowingly suppress the truth of his existence in sinful disregard. They know, the Bible says, that every single person knows that God exists, but because of their sin and the desire to hold on to their sin, they shove that down. The plain, obvious truth of God's existence that we can see all around us in creation. The biblical worldview is, declares the truth that all people know that God exists, but they sinfully refuse to submit to him. This is not an intellectual rejection. This is a moral rejection. I want to hold on to my sin. I do not want to submit to a God who's going to tell me how to live my life. That's a moral objection. And because of this, as we saw last week, God gave them over to the futility of their thinking and the darkness of their hearts to worship anything and everything except God himself in idolatry. Because of this, God's given them over. The concept of giving them over to sin means that God does not restrain them from more sin. He says, okay, you want sin so badly? Go ahead. See how that works out for you. And today, we are going to see the consequences of someone, of, of people who are given over to their sins. There are 
consequences to rejecting God and continuing in sin. Paul hinted at them last week, but this week he will pull no punches whatsoever. Look at verse 26 of Romans chapter 1. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You might be remembering last week where Paul systematically builds this argument Right? He's been doing it all along. There's, there's a lot of purpose clauses in here. A lot of the word for, F-O-R, there's a lot because he keeps building that. If we backtrack, maybe zoom out so we can see some of the bigger puzzle pieces here. Verse 15, we see that Paul's eager to get to Rome where he's never been to preach the gospel to the church at Rome. Why? Verse 16 says, for because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, why aren't you ashamed of the gospel? For, because it's the power of God for salvation, for righteous living and for faith. Okay, so why do we need salvation? Well, Paul answered that last week. We need salvation for, because the wrath of God exists. We need salvation from the wrath of God for sin. And why does the wrath of God exist? Because verse 19 told us that his existence is completely obvious and people just reject him in their sin. Verse 20 tells us that we have overwhelming evidence for the existence of creation. And so why and what do we see in creation that's so overwhelmingly clear? He tells us, well, for because his divine power, his eternal nature are so clear that they're, they're without excuse. No one is going to be able to stand before God and said, well, there just wasn't enough evidence for your existence. That's not going to carry any weight. The people who refuse to acknowledge this plain truth and submit to God, but instead worship the creature instead of the creator, for that reason, for, that's why, he gave them over to their sin. You want a life of sin so badly? Have at it. You think you've got it all figured out? Knock yourself out. Go do it. But there will be consequences. There will be consequences to you pursuing a life of sin. And consequence number one, Paul says, is homosexuality. We read the passage. What did what sin did God give them up to? It says in verse 26, he gave them up to dishonorable passions. If you're rolling King James this morning, it has vile affections. In other words, passions or desires that bring disgrace and dishonor. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie and having God give you up to your sin has consequences. And the first consequence hits us in the area of human sexuality. Notice that God, again, tells us that sinful desires, right? He says they are dishonorable passions, right? So desires are and can be sinful. It's not just the act, right? Pull it out of this context. If someone has a desire for someone who's not their spouse, that is a sinful desire, right? It must be repented of. If you have a desire for greed or to steal money in some way, that is a sinful desire. So our desires themselves is where sin comes from, and they are sinful, but in this case, the sinful desires lead to sinful actions. And Paul goes on to define homosexuality. In a world that can't define what a woman is, Paul defines homosexuality for us. Homosexuality is any sexual activity with someone of the same sex that you are. 
Homosexuality, according to the word of God, is absolutely sinful. Why? Because it goes against the natural order. It goes against the natural created order. That's what makes it so sinful. It's quite literally a sin against nature. This is what Paul says. He says, women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary or against natural relations. Kevin DeYoung writes, homosexual behavior is sinful because it violates the divine design in creation. The natural, God-ordained sexual order is a male and a female within the covenant of marriage. That's the way God created it. And first, Paul is talking about female homosexuality. It's unnatural. It violates God's created order. And as a consequence, that's the consequence of being turned over to your sin. And notice that Paul also continues building the superstructure of his argument here. He uses the word exchange, right? Just like he did last week. The women, meaning those who suppress the obvious reality, they're women, right? Those who do that exchange natural relations with men, just like exchanging the truth of God for a lie. They exchange natural relations for unnatural relations with other women. And then hearkening back again to verse 25, it's the exchange of the truth of God for a lie. The lie of dishonorable passions that lead them into homosexual sin against God's natural law, against his created order. But it's not just the women. Let's see how the men do. Look at verse 27. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Men are the same story. They, likewise, gave up or abandoned their natural sexual created order that they should have with women and became consumed with passion for other men. Our text says that they were committing in themselves shameless acts, men with men, and receiving in themselves the just consequence of their sin. Rejecting God and being turned over to sin does something to you as a person. It backs up into all kinds of sin. And Paul says the first obvious place that we will see this is in your sexuality. And I'll say the first point this way, and we have lots of unpacking to do. Rejecting God warps our sexuality. Rejecting God warps our sexuality. If you've ever had that moment, which I trust many of you have, where you're reading the news or you see something going on and you're like, how, what? What world do we live in? How did this happen? What sexually twisted world that we live in? This is how. Romans 1 is how. Every time you feel that moment of disgust or confusion or whatever else, think Romans 1. That's why. Because this is the consequence of God giving them over to sin. This is the consequence of rejecting a God that is so obvious it backs up by warping our sexuality. Remember the context of this. God's, Paul says God's nature is obvious. And homosexuality is something so completely unnatural Anyone should be able to see it. That's his argument. It's unnatural. It's biology. God created us with certain organs, male and female. Reproduction is impossible in a homosexual relationship. These things, just like Paul said, God's existence is so obvious in creation, so this should be so obvious, the natural way that things work. We have to stand firm on this church. We cannot capitulate to a culture and to a world 
who is celebrating the sinful consequences of rejecting God. Hear me very clearly. Homosexuality is a sin. It is a sin. And that's not me saying that. That's God saying that. That's God's word saying that. I can remember being on a plane or coming back from a conference, and I sat next to this woman. I saw her in the airport, and I just one of those people where I'm just like, you're going you're gonna to make me sit next to her, aren't you? Sure enough, crowded plane, she sits down. She was a homosexual. And much to her chagrin, she was on a plane load full of pastors coming back from a, a conference in Louisville. <laughs> and she sat next to me, and we talked the entire flight. You know, two and a half hours we talked. And I, I tried to plead with her and tell her all of these reasons that we're kind of talking about right now, and I tried to express care and compassion and, and talk. And we had a great conversation, and she looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, then why hasn't he ever told me that it's wrong? And I said, he did. He did. This is where he tells us. If we just listen to that voice in our hearts, right? Jeremiah says our hearts are wicked and deceitful. My heart tells me all kinds of things that I don't listen to and I shouldn't listen to. But he does tell us. He tells us in his word clearly. And due to the pervasive nature of this issue in 2023 America Church, we have to do a deeper dive here. This is one of those sermons that's going to be completely front-weighted. Like other people who are looking at this whole thing going, well, he's got a lot more verses to go, and uh, if he spends this much time, lunch is done. So what, we're going to spend a lot of time on these first two verses here, and then we'll wrap up with that second section uh, at the end, right? We have to get this clearly because it's in the air that we breathe. It's all around us. It affects all of us in some way, shape, or form. But here's one really Super important caveat that I want to put down before we go any further. This is going to be tough sledding this morning. If you are here and you are struggling with same-sex desires, if you are struggling with homosexuality, we love you and you are welcome here. We thank you for coming. And I hope that God's word will open your mind to this. We are no better than you. We are both image bearers. You are an image bearer of God and made in his image and you have value and dignity and worth just like we do. So please, and I'm very passionate about this because I see the damage all around us. I am very passionate about this so please don't interpret my passion to be anger or anything like that. And so I'll ask your forgiveness for that up front. I'm very passionate about this because it's so clear in God's word. And it is such a massive biblical misunderstanding. And it is so bad. It is doing so much damage to us. And so please, we even see this in churches in our own town. It's everywhere. We also know that many of us have friends, loved ones, family members who are in this. So please hear this. We have to cover all of this with a massive umbrella of gospel compassion. And the church has done a terrible job of that. And I know, in no way want to continue that this morning. We are all just beggars telling other beggars where to find a crust of bread. We have to treat this with massive compassion. But, here's the but, but that doesn't mean that we compromise on the truth. Compassion doesn't mean changing what the word of God says. We can't do that. 
but there is. There's a very tiny piece of land, right? A very small piece of land where we've got to plant our feet that says, I love you. This is wrong. That's where we've got to stand. We've got to have that respect and we've got it. We can't compromise the truth. We also, church, need to remember the love of God. Like all sin, he has made a way for us to be forgiven and healed. And it's my prayer that we all remember that, again, we are nothing without salvation in Jesus Christ. So, after what we just said, homosexuality being sinful, which is completely rejected by the culture around us, there are two main responses to this issue. Two main camps. I'll call them rationalizers and chastisers. Rationalizers are those people that would say, no, Pastor Mike, you're wrong. Uh, not the God that I serve. The God that I serve would not tell me that who I love is wrong. Maybe that you're reading these passages wrong. They really don't mean what you think they mean. We're going to rationalize this. You're actually on the wrong side of history on this. You Christians were wrong about slavery, and you're wrong about this too. It's more the rational. It's all about tolerance. It's about love. Jesus would just say, love everyone. We need to be open and affirming and celebrate people of all sexual orientations. That would be a rationalizer approach. And first, I would like to tell you, with the love of Christ, you're a fellow image bearer, but that is a lie from the pit of hell. That is not true. And we're going we're gonna to find out why. I want to respond to five common arguments that we hear from the rationalizer camp at why this is not a sin, or why this is a sin. Okay? So, hashtag, buckle up. Here we go. It's important to note, too, that a rationalizer can be someone who calls themselves a Christian. Right? This doesn't have to be just a non-Christian. Right? We hear it from pastors in our own town. Or it can be from someone who does not claim to be a Christian, who is trying to turn what little they know about Scripture against us. Right? That's why we have to know this. Argument number one, the Bible never calls it a sin. Answer, false. That's not true. We just looked at it. It's right here in this passage. But if you want to go all the way back to Genesis, which is a good place to start, we can go to Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God right there in the beginning says there's two genders and two only two genders. It's male and female and guess what? In order to reproduce, you need heterosexual sex in marriage. That's God's standard that he set. So anything else outside of that is sin. It's clear. Later on in God's law, he declares homosexuality to be an abomination. One of the strongest words in Hebrew that you can use. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as a woman. It is an abomination. And here, if you're talking to someone who knows just this much of the Bible, right, that's where you're going to get pounced on. Aha! So you're picking something out of the old law there, Mr. Man. How many tattoos do you have? Because Leviticus 19 says you shouldn't have any tattoos. And you're also wearing two different kinds of clothes. And how many seeds have you planted in the same field that are different seeds? Hmm? What do you say to that? It's like they know that much, right? It's a convincing argument for about 12 seconds, right? Because 
what that argument misses is understanding of the law of God. There are some things that were just for the nation of Israel that were set up for them. And they were fulfilled and they were completed in Jesus Christ. And so we're not cherry picking from the Old Testament what we want to. Oh yeah, I want shrimp wrapped in bacon, so let's do away with the food laws and then we'll do No, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what we do. We're not cherry picking. And how do we ultimately understand what is still in effect and what isn't in effect? Well, one of the best ways to do is the Bible itself. Go to the New Testament. Right? In the New Testament, we see that the moral law is still in effect. We go to the New Testament. Of course, the first place to go might be our main text here in Romans, which is probably one of the best places to go. But we also have clear references elsewhere. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners... For the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In the New Testament. Furthermore, any time the Bible used that one word for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. And you can see where we get our word for pornography. Right? Porneia is a big um, umbrella term in Greek. It means anything and everything that is sexually immoral. That is not one husband and one wife in the covenant of marriage. And so you better believe that homosexuality is in there. It absolutely is in there. So anytime the Bible says sexual immorality, that includes homosexuality by definition. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. There it is. Porneia. Impurity. Passion. Evil desire. Covetousness. Which is idolatry. In addition, we have countless quotes from church fathers, from the apostles all the way through the centuries of the early church calling homosexuality a sin. I don't have the time to go into them as much as I love church fathers, but they're there. So we have to realize the Bible never calls homosexuality a sin. That's not true. From cover to cover, it does. And we have verification in the early church fathers as well. Argument number two, okay, fine, so maybe the Bible calls it a sin, but Jesus never calls it a sin. In fact, Jesus never, ever spoke about homosexuality. Also, false, that's not true. One of the most overlooked passages about this issue is Matthew chapter 19. Jesus himself speaking. Pharisees, again, trying to put him to the test. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him, saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read? Always cracks me up when he tells the Pharisees who have this whole thing memorized. Have you not read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And therefore, he said, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they two, the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, excuse me, but one flesh. What God therefore has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus affirming a host of things in this passage from his own lips. Right? First of all, Genesis is for real. Like He quotes Genesis. So what's Jesus' opinion of the Old Testament? It's still valid. It's still there. He's quoting it as scripture. Second, what is he doing? Two genders, male and female. Jesus says directly, male and female. And what else is, what else is he saying? 
He's saying it's marriage between one man and one wife. So yes, Jesus does completely address the issue of gender and sexuality himself from his own lips. If you want more specifics, you can go back to Matthew 15, 19, a couple pages over, where Jesus condemns porneia, sexual immorality, as among those things of what defile us. Let's move on to the third argument. Argument number three. The Bible isn't talking about modern, committed, homosexual relationships, but just the the twisted kind of relationships that existed in the first century in Greco-Roman culture. And that is false. The Bible condemns the act of homosexuality, not the kind of relationship that it is. And I hope this is clear from where we were. If you've ever had this question, if somebody ever says this to you, one of the best places to go is our passage this morning, Romans chapter 1, right? Because he's not talking about relationships there. He's talking about the act of sin. But it is somewhat true, right? There was a terrible abomination in Roman culture in the first century, pederasty, which was an adult man, unfortunately, having relations with a boy. And that was a thing. It would happen. And so you can, so you can follow the argument. You can say, oh, okay, well, if they know that, then they say, well, th- obviously Paul's writing in the first century, so that must be the kind of homosexual relationship he's talking about. Not today when we have modern, monogamous, sophisticated relationships between two consenting adults, right? You can understand where that comes from, but it's still wrong. It's wrong because Romans 1. It says it's a sin against nature. It's fundamentally, foundationally sinful because it violates God's created order. Male parts are designed to be with female parts. Reproduction doesn't happen without heterosexual sex. But second, and more graphic and plain, look at the language again. Verse 27 tells us that the men committed shameless acts with one another. Men with men. I'll spare you what it actually says in the Greek. Nothing is left to the imagination. I'll just put it that way. It is very graphic in the Greek. It's not talking about the relationship. It's talking about the act. And third... If it were just talking about adult men with young boys, then why on earth would Paul bring in females into this? He's talking about all of it. He's talking about men and women. He's talking about the act itself. Two more arguments. Hang with me. I wouldn't normally be going this deep on a Sunday morning. This is more like a Sunday school, in-depth, deep dive. But this is huge in our culture. We have to know our Bibles. Amen, church? Fourth argument, fourth argument, God created me this way. And so what am I supposed to do? And the answer with a lot of compassion is no, he didn't. He really didn't. We have to look at this kind of in, in the, broader, the broader sphere and perspective of sin itself, right? James 1 tells us that we're all lured away and enticed by our own sinful desires, right? And what that means is that people will find certain things that are tempting, I'm tempted for things that other people may not be tempted for things. We all have different things, right, that could be tempting. And so there is the reality that people are born with homosexual temptations, proclivities, if you will, right? That could be a thing, and it is a thing, I believe, but that doesn't mean that we just act on it, right? 
if, if I have a temptation, an adulterous temptation, I don't just say, oh, well, that's how I was born. It doesn't work that way. That's not the whole scope of how it works in Christianity. We're supposed to kill sin. We have desires that will well up within us that are sinful, and we need to recognize that. Just the fact that we have a desire doesn't mean it's validated as good. We have to know that. And so, yes, there are people that are born with proclivities, but they have to be put to death just like all the proclivities we all have. And God gives us the Holy Spirit in order to do that. Now, I will tell you that there's such a thing, there's a social contagion going on here. And what I mean by that is like the more that this is talked about in society, the more that people are struggling, especially among the youth, my heart goes out to the youth because that is just such a, an up and down, topsy-turvy kind of crazy time where you're trying to figure out who you are. And if this is them in your face, you think, maybe I am gay. Maybe that's what I need. And what do you get when you think that? You get an identity, you get a community, you get validation, you get all of this stuff. All of that stuff that's only supposed to be found in Jesus Christ. And so I think the proclivity is the minority. I think the social contagion that we see in our society is the vast majority of people that are going through this and they're being lured away and sucked into this. I totally outran my notes there. Fifth argument. It isn't hurting anyone. So why do you care? Actually, it is hurting people. This is getting to the other group. We have the rationalizers, right? But now we have the chastisers. This is more of a chastiser argument. Just back off. What, what do you care what two grown adults do that are fully consenting in the privacy of their own home? It's ridiculous. Why would you ever care about that? It's not hurting anyone. And I would say it is. The truth that homosexuality hurts both the individual and society at large. Paul says in our main text in Romans 127 that those who practice homosexuality will receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. So we personally will receive a penalty. And what is that penalty? I think it's probably not too far away from the penalty that anyone would get from sexual sin. If you've ever committed sexual sin, you know that sexual sin is different. It carries a lot more hurt. It carries a lot more baggage. And that's what Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you get that? Paul puts it in a different category. And if you've ever struggled with sexual sin, you know that's true, right? Maybe we could say it that sexual sin is its own punishment. The emotional baggage, the spiritual baggage, right? So I would say, yes, it absolutely hurts the individual at some point in time. But it's also going to hurt more than the individual. It's going to hurt society. Can we all see the damage that this is being done in our culture? Is there a more divisive thing on the face of the earth right now? It's unbelievable. It creeps into every single aspect of our society. We have multi-billion dollar corporations tripping over each other to look at how woke they are. 
It gets everywhere. And it's like, how long can that last before that, that, that affects our society? It is degrading our society. It's a massive social contagion. More and more people are exchanging the truth of God for the lie of homosexuality. They're looking again for identity, for purpose, for community, for comfort, all of which is only found in Jesus Christ. The most divisive, divisive, rather destructive issue of our day, which is why I'm spending so much time on it today. People will want to put this back on Christians that we're to blame for pushing back. And true, we do need to admit that we have blown it. The church has blown this response in a lot of ways. It's a very sticky issue, and there needs to be lots of compassion. But first and foremost, church, we must know what the Bible clearly says. We must know that. And we must be able to respond to not only this sin, but all sin with grace. Because guess what? There are lots of other sins that are unleashed on our society in the world by rejecting God. And Paul ends this passage by going through another one of his patented vice lists. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, third time he said that, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous degree, the degree, decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God gives them over to something else, and he says it's a debased mind. Not only are we warped sexually, we're warped in our thinking and in our mental abilities. This warped thinking gives birth to the second consequence, the second point. Rejecting God warps our thinking. Rejecting God warps our thinking. In his massive 500-page book on the Bible and homosexuality, if you ever want to do a deep dive and you want to read 500 pages of it, there's no better than Robert Gagnon. And he says this, Quite appropriately, an absurd exchange for God for idols, of God for idols, leads to an absurd exchange of heterosexual intercourse for homosexual intercourse. Dishonoring of God leads to a mutual dishonoring of selves. A failure to see fit, to acknowledge God, leads to an unfit mind and debased conduct. Again, why do we end up with, I mean, this is like, again, like from the headlines, all of these, these vices that Paul, these sins, right? That's what happens. It's another consequence. You start to think, and we look at, think, warped. We look at a list like this, right? We know when we get to these vice lists in the New Testament, right? We skim them. And we're like, oh, yeah, cool. Uh, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm not really that evil. Uh, I'm not that insolent. Uh, I haven't invented much evil lately. Um, I'm not ruthless. I'm good. But what did we pass over? We all do it. We passed over envy. We passed over gossiping. We passed over slandering. We passed over disobeying parents. Sorry, kids. Passed over foolishness. Paul sneaks in these, like, little baby sins in the middle of, like, murder and everything else, right? And our minds go, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm good. No, we've got to look at the whole list. It's this point. Sin is sin. 
It has consequences. A properly calibrated mind spiritually will look at any of these things and know immediately that it's sinful and we shouldn't do them. But if you reject God, your thinking is not properly calibrated. So you look at these things and you're not really sure and you fall into the trap. Calvin wrote, As they chose not to continue in the knowledge of God, which alone guides our minds to true wisdom, the Lord gave them a perverted mind which can choose nothing that is right. Commentator Douglas Moo wrote, People who refuse to acknowledge God end up with minds that are disqualified from being able to understand and acknowledge the will of God. This is evangelism. This is when we, we preach the gospel, and it's not us that does anything. It's the Holy Spirit that opens eyes and softens hearts to this. How much, when we look at this list, where's the conviction land for you and for me? How much have we gossiped? How much have we disobeyed our parents? How boastful have we been? How foolish have we been? And we know better. In verse 32, it actually says, everybody knows better. Look at verse 32 again. Though they knew, they know, rather, God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They know. We know. When we sin, we know it. Every human being on the planet knows there's right and there's wrong. Over time, you, your calluses could develop and that could then get warped, right? But we all know what sin is. We all know what right and wrong is. God's given it to us in our hearts. But that doesn't stop us from doing it. And worse yet, we know that God's going to judge us. You know he has righteous decrees. You know he's not going to let it slide. But still we do it. It's the deceptive nature of sin. Church, we can't direct our angst, our disgust, or especially not any hate at the people who are stuck in sin. They need a savior. And we know who he is. And that's where all this has to lead back to, the very truth that was rejected in the first place. Church father John Chrysostom said this, when God abandons a person to his own devices, then everything is turned upside down. The answer is never Stop sinning. The answer is never just stop being gay or stop being haughty or stop disobeying your parents. We can't do that. The answer is Jesus. The answer is repent and believe and be transformed by the Holy Spirit. That's the answer. And at the risk of being a little more pithy than I usually am on a Sunday morning, rejecting God Here's our big idea. Rejecting God turns a life upside down and only Jesus can recenter it. Rejecting God turns a life upside down and only Jesus can recenter it. We have to have hard conversations with soft hearts in front of open Bibles. We have to stand on the truth of God's word. We have to point to the consequences of rejecting God. And perhaps the biggest cultural lie that is in all of this because homosexuality becomes an identity, right? And so when you disagree with someone, you're then disrespecting who they are. And that's a lie. That's not true. We have to fight for that thin piece of land that says, no, 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 I love you, I respect you, but this is wrong. It's there, it's about this big, but it's there, and we have to stand on it. It is not true that if I disagree with you, I'm disrespecting you. We disagree with everything all the time, lots of things, 
doesn't mean we disrespect someone. It doesn't mean they'll go as far as to say, well, then you're not even acknowledging my existence. No, that's not true. I fully acknowledge your existence. You're an image bearer of God. You have value and dignity and worth. But you're sinning. And there's a Savior. And his name is Jesus. That's where we've got to stand, church. The church cannot be seen as the ones using the Bible as a club, but as a life-saving station for those who are stuck in sin. Bruce Ashford wrote this, and I love this quote. Our role as Christians is to receive the refugees of the sexual revolution and offer them something more permanent and true. Isn't that amazing? Because there will be refugees. The refugees are coming. Once they get to the end of that and realize that sex and that sin did not fulfill everything that they thought it would, they're going to come looking. And we've got to be ready with what is more permanent and what is more true. Rejecting God has consequences. It warps our sexuality. It warps our thinking. It literally turns our view upside down. And only Jesus can recenter it. Because at the end of the day, church, we have all rejected God in some way, shape, or form, haven't we? Every single one of us. It's profoundly simple, yet profoundly complicated by one thing, sin. The deception of sin has led all of humanity to have a warped interpretation of reality. And in many smaller ways, each and every one of us exchange the truth of God for a lie every time we sin. That's why we are all, there's a ground is level at the cross, right? We're all there. And to maybe end on one of the most encouraging notes I can, let me read from Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out richly on us in Christ Jesus. Church, this is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the hope that everyone has in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this word, a hard word, a difficult word, a countercultural word. And Lord, it, is, it, it flies in the face of the air that we breathe all around us. Give us the courage to stand on your word. Give us the wisdom to really know what your word says. Give us giant, gospel-compassionate hearts to have those conversations, Lord, to express love and compassion for those who are stuck in the swamp of sexual sin and be able to hold out the hope of Jesus Christ, the washing and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Father, do this work in us. Let us be a bright light in the backdrop of a culture that has rejected you and is receiving the consequences. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.